0: Both Ed and Richard have mentioned our, our encouragement for, for everyone to uh, get involved in uh, care groups especially, but I, I wanted to mention that um, the, the vision is, is not so limited as whatever you think a care group might be right now, but we'd, we'd like for you to be thinking about what, what that might look for you to connect with other members. Of Lake Morton, and I just wanted to mention something because it hit me this morning that um, uh, the hope is that our relationships would be such that if if you're missing here on on Sunday morning, or even if you're missing from from my life over the course of the week, that I would notice. And I wanted to mention that I noticed this morning that Chuck Straubel's not here, because he is so faithful to pray with those of us who preach, um, and something like that is creating a connection that, um, that makes it meaningful for, uh, for Chuck to be a part of, of our fellowship, and when he's gone, I miss him, and uh, that's our hope. So talk amongst yourselves about that. Okay, so now for the apology. I had a good run. I went through the last two or three sermons as advertised. I sent Elizabeth a text with a title, a text, and an outline. And on Sunday, I preached that text. I admit it, I got a little overconfident this week. And if you can believe it, we will only be addressing the first bullet point in your outline today. Don't worry, I'm sure it will still be something of a fire hose of information. Um, So at least that part's consistent, right? Um, But in any case, I'm gonna keep the title as it is. No need for any part one, part two silliness, um, like I've done before. I'm going to give you guys a completely different title next time uh, as we move on to the second half of this longer passage. But today, it's just Colossians 3, 12 through 14. I have a friend named Ben who is something of an expert on habit formation. I can remember when he taught me that we, we often try to establish habits with grand gestures, like New Year's resolutions, right? But he explained, the best way to establish a new habit is by beginning with something so manageable that it seems almost insignificant. Take, for example, the habit of flossing your teeth. If you don't floss, and you want to, even for no other reason but to get the dentist off your back. Anyway, if you want to take up flossing, the best approach is not to commit to flossing your teeth every day. It's actually a much better approach, according to Ben and other experts, by the way, to make a much smaller commitment. For example, to floss one tooth. I guess that means between two teeth, but anyway. Floss one tooth every day. I'm serious. That works better. Or how about this? What if you wanted to, I don't know, run a marathon or do 100 push-ups? You don't need to commit to running 42 kilometers or doing 100 push-ups every day. To reach your goal. In fact, I think it's obvious in this case, that's a really bad idea. (laughs) Rather, what you should do is commit to walking a little bit or jogging maybe a little bit every day. Or in the case of push-ups, maybe just do one push-up, maybe a plank for a few seconds every day. That's it. One push-up. I'm not saying that you'll reach your goal If you follow this advice, that's not the point. But it's more likely that you will reach your goal by following this advice. Why? Well, the problem is, with trying to take on a fully formed habit all at once, it becomes really easy to miss a day. And that day becomes two days, and two becomes three, and so on. But if you set the bar really low, you have no excuse not to floss that one tooth. Your habit seems really manageable, it's sustainable, and it's more likely to stick. And since you're already in place to floss that one tooth, you might as well do the rest also. That tips for free. But there's another principle of habit forming, I think I heard it from Ben as well, that applies specifically to chapter 3 of Colossians. This time, it deals with getting rid of bad habits and acquiring new ones. You see, when we try to quit an unproductive pattern of behavior, the tendency is to focus wholly on stopping something. I mean, with good intentions, we can fixate on the negative aspect. Let's say we want to, Arthur, stop picking our nose, right? I don't know why you would want to quit, but let's just say. Arthur, are you listening? So, we commit. I'm not going to pick my nose. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. We say to ourselves. As a result, we spend most of our time thinking about what we're trying to give up. So much that it overwhelms us. And eventually, we give in. Don't give in. Instead we should focus not on what we're getting rid of, but on the new good habit or behavior that will fill in the space that's left behind. You see, trying to cut out a bad habit leaves something of a vacuum. And unless you fill that vacuum with something else, the easiest thing to do is to let the bad habit back in. Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. (laughs) Okay, what does this have to do with Colossians chapter 3? Well, if you remember, last time we talked about verses 5 through 11, where Paul called the Colossians to put to death a collection of sinful behaviors. And today, we begin the next section discussing the positive characteristics we are to put on instead by members and representatives as of the kingdom of God. Can you see the wisdom in how Paul has organized his letter? There is a very practical logic behind this flow of thought, a logic that parallels the gospel itself. We can't merely turn from sin without at the same time turning to Christ. We can't peel off our old fleshly nature and not clothe ourselves in Christ likeness. If we do, if we turn from sin but not to Christ, if we put to death our sinful nature but don't put on Christ, we're fooling ourselves. We can expect that those old ways will return to fill in the vacuum. With these things in mind, if you would stand with me as I read Colossians 3 verses 12 through 14 excuse me, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." (laughs) And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Lord, teach us Christlikeness. Show us the truth and depth of who Christ is and, and what he has done, what he's like. Teach us how to follow Christ rightly how to replace our selfishness and idolatry with humility and patience and love. And especially, Lord, teach us how to be the body of Christ, how to see our conduct and character matters to the rest of the body, especially to those who are part of this local gathering. And once again, Show us, Lord, how to make all of our seeking a seeking after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So today, as I said, I'm going to cover the first bullet point, the first outline heading. And you can leave that one as it is. Um, But I'm going to add more bullets as we go along, breaking it up into pieces. But I'm going to have a lot to say before we actually get to that first bullet point. You can organize your bulletin as you like. So Paul's first command is to put on the character of Christ. Look with me at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. First, before we get started on these, uh, li- this list of virtues, I'd like to draw your attention to the word then. It's a small word, but we should take note. Here, it's actually the same word that's elsewhere translated therefore or consequently. Uh, those sound more important, but they're all the same, and they function in the same way in Paul's letter. They show us that Paul is making a connection between his ideas, Here it shows us that the command to put on humility, for example, in Paul's mind, is a logical consequence of what he said before. He says, therefore, put on humility. And when we look back and notice that Paul used this same word in verse 5, there it's translated therefore, we can see that there's a repeated pattern, a repeated structure. Verses 5 through 11 address the negative aspect. Putting to death such things as selfishness, idolatry, anger, deception. Verses 12 through 17 take up the positive aspect, putting on such things, compassion, forgiveness, love, and unity. The whole passage from 12 to 17 parallels 5 through 11 very closely. The two make up sort of a complete cycle, following Paul's recurring pattern in the letter of death to life, burial to resurrection putting off to putting on. So I'd like to ask a question. If I were to ask you, out of this whole passage or even just this first verse, which ideas resonate with you the most deeply? I would expect, if you're like me, you would gravitate towards the list of virtues or the grander statement about love that's coming up. But I want to challenge us with this thought, that perhaps the most lofty idea in this whole paragraph of deep theological truth and conviction is found in verse 12, primarily in three words, chosen, holy, and beloved. It should catch our attention every time we hear it that God has chosen us. It should move us as I'm sure it did for the Colossians when they read these words out loud to think we are holy, set apart from the world, and beloved by God. So first, let's talk about what it means that Paul identifies the Colossians as the chosen ones of God. Along with holy and beloved, these are familiar terms to Paul. Even though Paul is writing in Greek and not Hebrew, it's hard to miss that he's applying language reserved for Israel throughout the Old Testament. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7, and see what you hear. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number. Than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, while this is a grand statement for the Israelites, how remarkable is it that Paul is using such terms to address a gathering of Gentiles in a house church in Colossae? Yes, surprising. Until we remember that just one verse back, Paul wrote in verse 11, here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In fact, Paul has been throughout his letter dismissing distinctions between Jew and Gentile and emphatically applying the gospel with all of its benefits to the Colossians. Let no one disqualify you he says. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And saints there is again the word holy ones. This isn't the only time this chosen, holy, and beloved kind of expression is applied to the church. In Ephesians, Paul celebrates the same threefold blessing. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Consider also 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought also always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth and their sanctification is again the word holy. Peter makes a parallel statement that seems to resonate with the entire book of Colossians. Here is 1 Peter 2:9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there, I think that his own possession is a reference back to Deuteronomy 7, the treasured possession, precious to God. Wonderful words. These are just a sampling. This threefold declaration about the church is throughout the New Testament. And before we move on, I want us to consider how these words should affect us. We would do well to meditate on these three descriptions. How they're a powerful encapsulation of our identity as children of God. Chosen, holy, and beloved. Seems to be Paul's summary of all that he's said in Colossians thus far. And furthermore, these truths should motivate, they should be a force of motivation behind our commitment to put on virtues and behaviors that he's about to to list as worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, notice how our identity as holy and beloved of God is the greatest comfort and assurance we could have. But it also comes with responsibility. This is who you are. So yes, celebrate it. But also live like it's true about you. Perhaps, Such a comment should remind us of another statement in Colossians, namely chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Many Bible scholars see Colossians 3, 12 through 17 as the culmination of a section Paul began back in chapter 2, verse 6. And I tend to agree. We'll have to wait until next time to tie a bow on it. But in this whole passage, Paul is drawing a conclusion about what it means to walk according to the gospel we have received. And finally, notice how this language identifies the Colossians and us and all of God's people with Christ himself. After all, Jesus is the chosen one, the holy one, the beloved. The title Christ or Messiah, meaning anointed, is essentially synonymous with chosen Matthew 12 quotes Isaiah 42 concerning Christ. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Early in Colossians, of course, Paul refers to Christ as the beloved son, saying that the father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Then in the following verses, Paul launches into his Christological hymn, Christ is the image of the invisible God, making unseen truths about the nature of God visible, tangible even, to the rest of creation. In a similar way, we have unseen truths about us, things that are hidden, things that God has declared true about us in the gospel, things that we should make visible to the world. There are so many themes overlapping at this point. I wish we could just rest here for a while. We are beloved in as much as we are in the beloved. And as adopted members of the kingdom of the Son, we are to take on the family resemblance. The Son is the very image of God, and it is in His image that we are being renewed day by day. Quoting Peter again in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, and he's sort of quoting or stating the theme of the entire book of Leviticus here. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or even take the wonderfully concise Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. As beloved children. Hmm. You may be wondering, how on earth is he going to get through the whole list of virtues if it's taken him this long to get through the introductory phrase? You understand now why I had to cut the sermon in two, right? You see, I think we just arrived at a key to the list. Paul's not shaking his finger at us and telling us, be good if you call yourself a Christian. It's much more than that. He's inviting us to put on the character of Christ. He's inviting us to be imitators of the beloved Son. He's telling us to take the things that God has declared true about us in the gospel, that we are in Christ together. We are the body of Christ, and we are to make those things visible to each other, and to the world. So, if we should put on the character of Christ, what does Paul tell us to put on? Here's verse 12 again. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And just in case... We didn't immediately pick up on the clothing imagery here. Put on literally means clothe yourselves. You know the old saying, dress for the job you want, not for the job you have? I don't know what that says about me most of the time, but in any case, that's not what Paul's saying. He doesn't say, dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. He's saying dress for the identity you already have in Christ. It gives whole new meaning to the significance of getting dressed for church, doesn't it? You are the chosen ones, holy and beloved. So you should dress like it. You already have a new identity. You have a core identity in Christ. Okay. Okay. Now, make the whole identity match, beginning with your attitudes, your thoughts, expanding outward into your behaviors, as Paul will say next time in your words and deeds. And as radical as it sounds today, Paul says, identify with your identity. <laughs> in a parallel passage in Philippians 2 5 through 11, Paul directly connects these virtues and behaviors with how Christ, though equal with God the Father, humbled himself to death on the cross. Paul is describing the character of Christ with this list of virtues. He's telling us to clothe ourselves in Christ to become like him. Not completely unlike how Christ clothed himself in flesh, to become like us. We could say, Christ put on flesh to die in the flesh, so that we could die to the flesh and put on Christ. Let me do it again. Christ put on flesh to die in the flesh, so that we could die to the flesh and put on Christ. Take that as the background to this list of virtues. And I'm not ready yet. And I hope I'm not trying your patience. But before we take on the virtues, I want to prep us with four thoughts, four observations. First, after making so much of being the chosen people of God, these virtues make a surprising list to apply to people who must be the most privileged in all the world. That is, from a worldly perspective, I mean. If we have not put to death our worldliness, these will be very counterintuitive for us. It's like Paul is saying, yes, you are chosen, holy, and beloved. And here's your list of privileges. Humility, Meekness, patience. For sure, this should remind us of Jesus' list of Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. I'll just give you the, the highlights here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. It goes on, the persecuted. The persecuted. Now, now, Paul isn't quoting this, but the similarity is strong. Both lists point to what I've heard referred to as the upside-down kingdom, meaning that the kingdom of the beloved son flips the world's expectations on their head. God's chosen ones don't look down on others. They don't claw and scrape to get their own way. They don't demand their rights Leave those things to the kingdoms of the world, but set your minds on the kingdom above. Second, these virtues are, as I've already mentioned, self evidently Christ like. All of these can and have been applied to Christ. And so when we read these, we should see them as Christ like standards. When Paul says, put on compassion, He's not talking about some generic compassion, but we should consider it the standard of compassion that's been set by Christ. Third, notice that these virtues are assumed to be normal for the church. These are not just for the elite, just for the professionals, for Paul and Peter and Timothy, but these are for the whole church, even the lowly church in Philemon's house in Colossae. Even for a lowly church parked next to a lake in central Florida. These are intended to be an articulation of our church culture. And fourth, since these are presented as church life characteristics, take a moment to think about how every virtue Paul mentions has a relational quality. We're going to talk more about this next time, but for now, observe that these virtues cannot be fully exercised in isolation. Hmm. If we look back at the two lists of sinful attitudes and behaviors in the previous passage, we can see that they too are overtly concerned with relationships. All along, Paul has been thinking of the church as a body made up of relationships. So finally, with all this in mind, let's quickly survey the virtues. First, we are to have compassionate hearts like Christ. Jesus often had compassion on the crowds for many reasons. Because they were lost, they were hungry, or they needed healing. He used the word compassion to describe the Samaritan. And to describe the, prodigal, the father of the prodigal son. And in Matthew 9, 36-38, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." So we can see even there, Jesus expected his disciples to respond to the wandering crowds with compassion too, overflowing in earnest prayers. Next, we have kindness. I'll give two verses. First, Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Talk about an upside-down kingdom. Here, kindness is placed on the level of love, extending even to enemies. Notice especially, kindness is not being nice, but doing good and giving freely. And, so, and also... Matthew 11, verse 30, for my my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy, describing Jesus' yoke, is the same word that's used for kind in our passage today. This is a double-edged virtue, isn't it? Meaning kindness both willingly carries others' burdens, but at the same time intends to be unburdensome to others. After kindness, we have humility. I've already referred to this passage, but I can't think of a better example of humility. So I saved the quote until now. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I like to say, if we were to measure the distance from the height of one's worthiness to the depth of one's humility, Jesus' journey from the throne to the cross would make any humbling on my part unnoticeable by comparison. Who am I that I should complain when Christ himself didn't open his mouth? He didn't call down legions of angels. And he had every right. I hope you see how looking at these virtues as a standard of Christ affects our understanding, affects our response. Next, meekness. Of course, we read about how the meek are blessed in the upside-down kingdom. Jesus sets the standard here too. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here, it's the word gentle, actually, that's the same root as meek in our passage. Obviously, Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is one away from the verse I used for kindness. Both mention the yoke of Christ. It's no small thing to seek to have the gentleness and the meekness of Christ. Christ is an unsurpassed example of a meek heart especially as he approaches those who are broken, lost, and empty. After meekness, Paul names patience, which is an attribute of God, often put in the context of God's waiting for sinners to repent. 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul writes, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, that is, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul writes to Timothy that Jesus showed perfect patience towards him, meaning not merely that Jesus waited, but that he waited through Paul's rebellion and pride and persecution, even. And he waited with the intention towards reconciliation all the way, perfectly, completely, to Paul's repentance. And what are we willing to put up with in our friends even, let alone our enemies, as Paul was to Christ? In articulating, especially patience in this way, I hope we can see that the next verse are in fact a fleshing out, pardon the pun, of what patience will look like in the life of the body. Paul says that our Christ-likeness will be revealed through relationships. Look at verse 13. He says, "...patience, (laughs) bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." I wouldn't be surprised if bearing with one another is an allusion to the image of the yoke again, like Jesus' yoke that is easy and light. Be kind and meek, easy and gentle in patience with one another. Let your kindness be a celebration of how precious the kindness of Christ is to you. Now, you don't have to load all of that onto the yoke that you're helping someone else carry. But you can enjoy it. Remember, you're not paying Christ back. Let me say that again. You can't pay Christ back. But you can pay Christ's kindness forward. Even just for the joy of it. You see, patience is a virtue, as they say. But patience in isolation, without the burdens of sharing life with other impatient people is incomplete, is imperfect. And so Paul makes the standard of the kingdom more explicit by showing patience applied to church life. He says, if you have put on patience, you will put up with one another and you will forgive one another. Part of the point of Paul's chapter 3, 12-14 through 14, and on through 17 is that we must be in close enough relationship with people to be in position to actually perform these things. And forgiveness. Remember how I said these things are both surprising and normal at the same time? Well, in our more f- fleshly moments... I think we can agree that forgiveness feels like the furthest thing from normal. And in response, like good Christians, we could have something of a mathematical approach to forgiveness. And we could read this verse mathematically, that if God has forgiven us, how simply reasonable is it that we forgive others? Easy, right? Wrong. Instead, We should reflect on how wonderful it is that God has forgiven us. Us. Of all people. That is fuel for our forgiveness. The more certainly we can say with Paul that we are among the foremost of sinners, the more willingly, even eagerly, we will extend forgiveness to others. I've been considering getting in the habit of referring to these characteristics as one another virtues or habits of one another. I don't know. haven't worked it out yet. They're all intended to be two-way attitudes and behaviors in the church. I bear with you. You bear with me. We bear with one another. On the one hand, This means that the proper way to bear with one another and to forgive one another is obviously not by avoiding contact with one another to keep the peace. As tempting as that might be. We have to be involved in one another's lives. Keeping our relationships on the surface is not actually bearing anything. It's barely bearing the load of an occasional greeting, I suppose. So bad news first. The fact that Paul mentions these is a good sign that anybody you spend very much time with is going to demand some bearing with and is going to require some forgiveness. In short, we are not Christ-like yet, and we shouldn't expect others to be. Or Paul wouldn't have to give us these commands. He would just say, believe the gospel. We're done. Speaking of the gospel, listen to the good news. What Paul is describing through these one another virtues is what makes the body of Christ work and grow and mature. That is, assuming that our one anothering, ooh, I like that one, is wrapped up in the greatest of Christ-like characteristics. Love above all. Verse 14. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Of course, we've arrived at love, which apart from the gospel is one of the most elusive of virtues to define. Still, if we were to create a picture in our minds of what the ideal human looks like. We could talk about things like intelligence, physique, personality, skill set, sense of humor, maybe. But here, Paul says that the ideal human is made complete by love. Or put negatively, No set of virtues is complete without love. Especially coming on the heels of Resurrection Sunday, this reminds me of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant had no special appearance. Christ didn't have any physical attributes that are even worth mentioning in the scriptures. But what is clear is that he had love like no other, And that he showed love like no other. And so, as we contemplate our being clothed in Christ, let us especially consider how we might be wrapped up in love, holding all our other virtues together under the mantle of love. Especially using Christ-like love as the standard of measure for our humility and compassion and kindness. I would imagine also that there are plenty of characteristics, qualities that I possess, that frankly are incompatible with the love of Christ. If I want to be mature, if I want to be a normal member of the kingdom of God, it should be normal for me to judge my selfishness and pride and use the clothing of Christ to keep selfishness out while keeping humility in. The image of love binding everything together, in Paul's mind, is is probably something of an overcoat, perhaps. One that you put over the top of the rest of your clothing, you put on the other virtues, and then love on top. But, as silly as it sounds, the image that comes to my mind is actually a spacesuit. You heard me. A spacesuit. If you think of all of the mechanisms and elements functioning in a spacesuit, if you have all that stuff on, but you don't have the outermost part that holds it all together, seals it off, you won't survive. None of those other functions and elements will be of much good to you or anyone else for that matter, if you don't have the outermost part holding it all together. Love is like that. <laughs> Love is a spacesuit, it holds the, the rest of the Christian life together as one thing. It keeps you and the rest of your virtues from freezing or suffocating. Love is the virtue that sustains patience. Love fills up forgiveness. And it's not just any love, not generic love, not love as you define it. It's love exemplified in the person of Christ. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life his friends. Put on the character of Christ. Let that Christ-likeness be revealed in your relationships and come close enough to people to show Christ to them. And let the love of Christ be your standard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, I bow before you that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened by the power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be fulfilled and we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.